Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. Our guest today is Jake Freudenberger, a fourth-year medical student at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. A few years ago, he started the Medical Business Association in order to fill the gap in medical business education. He is also the co-founder of the nonprofit Trafficking in Medical Education, or TIME, which aims to help graduate medical programs incorporate human trafficking training into their curriculum. We talk about these projects and what motivates Jake. Jake has a great philosophy for living life, and you can see how this philosophy has allowed him to accomplish so much. Hope you enjoy. Well, Jake Fordenberger, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, just to go ahead and start, can you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Who are you? Um, where are you at in your education? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so Jake Freudenberger. I am a fourth year at University of North Texas Health Science Center, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, I was a co-founder of the Medical Business Association, so this is super cool to see where it has come after all these years. And then I'm the president and co-founder of Trafficking and Medical Education. Just finished up my interviews, and uh, in March, we'll find out where I match for emergency medicine residency. Cool. Congratulations. That's, that's a long journey, and we're on that journey. And uh, a little bit jealous that we're not to where you're at yet, but honestly, kind of enjoying the ride, just doing the doing the book work right now. So, hey, take take your time, my friend. I'll, I'll give you. We'll start off this uh, podcast with the best piece of advice that I've gotten since the start of medical school, which is, don't look forward to the next step. You know, enjoy the process of getting to where you're going because you're going to wake up one day, 13 years down the road, waiting until that next step where things get better, and you're look back and you're gonna be like, what the hell just happened. <laughs> so take your time. I know there are going to be stressful parts, but there, there's a lot of really enjoyable parts of medical school. So I think that I should focus on that too. No, we appreciate that. So we wanted to start off the show. You kind of introduced yourself a little bit. You got a degree, an undergraduate degree in business management. Can you explain a little bit why you decided to do that? Yeah. So I actually got interested in medicine when I was in high school, hurt my shoulder a few times, went to physical therapy and really got interested in that. And then um, I actually was fortunate enough to get into the business school. That was kind of a push by my dad who was in, he's a healthcare administrator. He's been a CFO for uh, different hospitals and is an administrator right now. And he kind of saw the effects of what happens when physicians do not have basic business concepts and then they go out into the world and they struggle and it leads to a lot of issues um, both personal and professionally, um, it leads to a lot of those issues. So he kind of pushed me into the business management route and his, you know, I didn't really want to do that. I knew I wanted to do medicine, but it was like, look, just try both for a year. We'll see where you're at. And I ended up loving it. I love the business school, you know, UT Austin's one of the best programs in the nation. And I am just so, uh, fortunate to have had that experience, uh, to be there. And then I chose, so there were di uh, different tracks, right? There was like accounting, no chance. I, I took accounting. I was like, I, I don't want to do class that. ever. We did a depreciation of an MRI machine, I remember, and I was like, nope, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so then there's finance. A lot of my friends are in finance. Um, 
making a lot more money than I have been the past four years. <laughs> um, but I, that wasn't really for me. So I wanted to choose the route that was the, had the most crossover with, uh, medical, uh, with medicine, which was management. And there's so many different things that I learned through my management degree that just prepared me amazingly for not just the managerial side of medicine. Sure. You could say I try to position myself for admin or being a leader, but really it's just understanding human psychology. You know, understanding how to negotiate. You negotiate every single day with patients. Uh, so that, I became really passionate about that. It was something that my dad wanted me to do. And then as I grew into it, I loved business. I mean, I loved, um, the way that I used to describe it was, I love understanding two of the most important things in the world to a, de- to a greater degree than most people, which was business and medicine, you know? Yeah, that's that's crazy. We had an interview actually um, the other day that we recorded and the guy was talking about how, all doctors are just inherently managers. Even if you're not on the hospital administration, you're managing a team of nurses and all sorts of other things. And I mean, obviously I'd kind of thought about it before, but when he said that, I was like, yeah, he's exactly right. We're going to be in charge of people. And a lot of times you don't get a lot of preparation for that kind of stuff, because like you said, it breaks down to human psychology and, you know, group management and things like that. So probably that stuff will come in handy. Absolutely. And, And the medical school route is not really designed to help you become a leader and understand that. Now, TCOM does a lot of things. A lot, a lot of medical schools do a lot of things to try to prepare you for that. But when you go into clerkships, you're the bottom of the totem pole. You know, when you go, when you're a first year or second year medical student, you want to get to clerkships. So everything's designed to think that you are the bottom of that, but you have to go out and develop your leadership abilities on your own. And that's why residencies look so heavily on these leadership positions. It's not just like a thing to put on the CV. It's have you develop the necessary qualities so that you will become a good leader, which inevitably, no matter what, as you said, as a physician, you will be a leader of some people. Um, so yeah, for sure. So do you feel that you're, cause one, so I also graduated with a business degree, right? And the question I get asked over and over is, did that put you at a disadvantage applying to medical school? And my personal feeling was like, it might've put me at an advantage, a disadvantage getting in or possibly taking some of the basic science courses. I wasn't as, I didn't have as much exposure to science as some of my classmates, but long-term I feel like it's a benefit. What do you feel about that? Do you feel like your business degree was a hindrance getting in, but now it's benefiting you or do you feel like it's been a benefit the whole way? The hindrance of me getting in was my low GPA, honestly. <laughs> so, was, let's just get that out of the way. I, well, know, let's be honest. <laughs> um, had, I, had I gotten the necessary GPA, I imagine that my business degree will, would have been only a benefit because they're looking for new and unique people. You know, when you're dealing with so many applications on a, on a, day, on a yearly basis, residencies, medical schools, they're looking for some sort of flavor, some personality, something unique that brings you apart from others. Um, assuming you get up to that level of thresh of GPA threshold, right? Which I did not do, which is why I had to go back do a post back, become an EMT, um, and really build the medical side of my CV because it was kind of weak coming out of college. So, um, I'm pretty confident based off my interviews that I did have after my second time that my business degree would have only helped me had I had the necessary, um, you know, uh, grades to get me above that threshold. Uh, but understandably they have a lot of different applications and, you know, you have to cut it off at some point. So it was just a game. Um, but now, I mean, it's has benefited me to a degree that I don't even think I fully realized yet. Um, and I, I just wish 
when, when people ask me, what is your advice for my son or my daughter who wants to go into medicine, they're pre-med. I'm like, try to work for a year or two out of medical school. And that just helps you understand these basic business concepts, how these things work, um, how that, not that it's necessary. I'm just saying it's helpful. Um, but just like having a little bit of actual real world work before you go in to uh, the medical school route is helpful in developing those understandings, those business understandings. I guess I'm the only one here that got a science degree for undergrad, but yeah, like you said, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's been a huge benefit to me because a lot of the stuff we're learning, especially these days, it's so specific and so detailed that it doesn't really cross apply. The only thing that I will say about it is they do emphasize a lot about how to interpret data and use the scientific method really well. Mm -hmm. But that gets emphasized, I'm sure in business curriculum too, because you have to use the same principles, whether you're looking at an experiment or whether you're looking at, you know, data from how much your expenses and how much revenue you're coming in. It's the same principles. So here's where I see the, and I agree hundred percent is very much the same principles. The, the difficulty during uh, college was the lack of overlap in my classes. I mean, I had to switch from business to medicine and those were entirely different approaches to studying. I mean, just, you have creative thought provocative type of things versus, uh, you know, like it's a fact and there's no challenging that fact, you know? So, um, it was difficult while it was happening, but it made me think and see the world in new ways. And honestly, one of the biggest things that it taught me was just how to speak in public and how to speak to others, how to talk to others in a way that you are trying to get them to do what you know is best for them, but in a way where it's their idea, you know, just that kind of mental judo. Um, so it was in a lot of ways, it was beneficial in some ways it was difficult, but yeah. Well, just talking to you, you can see the business skills that you've gained, that communication skills that you've gained. And if I was in a residency interview right now and I was interviewing Jake, I'd be like, oh yeah, let's, let's rank him number one, you know? And, but like you say, to get into medical school, you need a threshold GPA. Same with residency. You need a threshold board score. And so you met those thresholds and now you have that advantage of, I can talk to people. I'm not super awkward, you know? So yeah. And you know, when you go into y'all are second years, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, when you go into rotations next year and you rightfully should ask when you start off, what can I do to help the team? How can I be a good rotator? Um, they're going to say, just <laughs> don't be awkward, man. You know, just like do your work, show up, work hard. And I can't tell you how many times I heard don't be awkward, which is kind of, uh, interesting and frightening at the same time. Um, you know, especially thinking myself as a resident next year, like, a lot. I, I felt like my class was amazing. Um, I know that we got really good uh, reviews from our clerkship, and I feel like most of the people that I rotated with in my class were just as good as I was at, you know, um, seeing these patients and communicating with them. I even had a, <laughs> I even had a, a doctor at a hospital say how much he loved TCOM rotators because we just worked so hard and we know how to communicate with patients. So I think that's just, you know, says a lot, but. Um, yeah, those communication skills are definitely important and you develop those and, um, somehow, uh, Chandler's okay. He's kind of awkward, but it's not that bad despite his science background. Don't don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Keep that in. (laughs) No, that's actually an interesting point that I think about because there's lots of, there is quite a bit of training we do on communication and training that I'll sum down to don't be weird kind of stuff, you know, all the time. And there is this weird phenomenon where it only takes one weird person on rotations 
to where, you know, something weird happens and they're like, man, this is some sort of like endemic thing with medical students. And so obviously they're going to institute a lot of that training. Most people are, I think my experience has been reasonably good at communicating by the time they get into medical school. Yeah. And I think TCOM does a good job of picking the type of people that would be good. Mm -hmm. And they definitely pick a lot of people who went through a similar route. I forget what the route was called. There's a name for when you go through a circuitous route into medical school, Um, non-traditional. It's traditional. There's a lot of non-trads um, at because everything is you know you have to shorten everything to sound cool. Um, <laughs> non-trads <clears throat> at TCOM, and I think that that's the whole concept of being having a job beforehand is developing those communication skills, the subtleties of communication um, that help you with your patient interactions. So once you got to TCOM, you started the Medical Business Association, and for those of on the podcast who don't know. Chandler and I are part of that association right now. Chandler's the president. I'm the vice president. And this podcast was kind of a spinoff of what we were doing. We couldn't have meetings in person. So we're like, let's make a podcast. Um, But this club started with you, Jake. Can you explain, can you tell us that story? Why did you start the Medical Business Association? Yeah, so it was uh, me and a few other of my colleagues, my roommate, Andrew Nash, Kyle uh, Ames, and Josh Lindsley. Um and Peyton Harris, who started this, we all had business backgrounds to some extent, you know, um, I, Kyle was actually at uh, UT Austin with me. Um, and then Nash had a MBA at Texas tech. Um, so we all just kind of came together with this understanding that the understanding basis, business concepts, the, the cell that I had to my medical school colleagues. So let me, let me actually, let me back up a little bit going into medical school. Um, I asked every interviewer, because it was big on my mind, what can you do for your students and what can what do you do as a physician to avoid physician burnout? Because I had no less than 15 physicians tell me I should not go into medicine before I applied to medical school. And I was like, what the hell am I getting into, you know? Um, so I asked them that and I tell you the, the top, one of the top two things and every single one of their things was finances or just, you know, working because you want to, not because you have to, which at ended up becoming our motto at the medical business association in a way. Um, but so that when I told them that, like that was my serious passion, everyone thought the medical business association was all about like trying to build your private practice, right. You know, trying to make sure you get all your money by coding appropriately. Sure. There is that aspect, but for me, everything comes down to happiness. Cause that's what I care about the most. I want my colleagues to be happy. I think that we are the next generation that's going to flip this entire healthcare system on its head. As you may be, have heard Dr. Lieto say once or twice, um, and that we are going to be the ones to change the world, but we can't do that if we're not happy where we're at, where we are at. And we don't get the training about very fundamental stuff, um, that help us when we transition into a much higher tax bracket, you go from 60,000, 45, 40 after taxes to, you know, 350 or 200 to 350 as a base. And people are like, Oh my God, I have all these expenses. I need to pay them off right away. And you don't realize that for those first two or three years, you got to live at the resident level. You know, you got to build that equity. You got to build that base um, just for your personal finances. And then you got all the other aspects of the world to deal with, right? You got your insurances. And the way that I see it is you have these things that you're going to have to deal with. The quicker you can understand them, the, the quicker you can work within those areas to get to deliver better care for your patients. If you're happier with your personal financial situation and you're working because you want to, not because you have to, that's going to trickle down with the way that you interact with your department. It's going to trick people are going to be happy that you show up rather than you're just dragging your feet coming in. And that's going to trickle down to your treatment with your patients, you know? 
and it's not an obligatory thing. It's a desirable thing that you're doing. Um, so that's kind of like in a, in a nutshell, kind of one of the basic reasons why we started it. And, uh, we had some amazing speakers, honestly, like some of the best speeches that I saw were from, uh, getting those at the medical business association. And that's a lot of what they talked about. My, my dad, um, who's the CEO of open medical center in Houston, he actually came up and spoke as part of our medical business week. And he, what I wanted him to say was, administration doesn't have to be your enemy. You know, you're taught from day one coming in, you know, you, you know, Z dog does this, you know, I've heard a lot of people say like admins, your enemy, you're they're, they're always going to be going against you, you know? Yeah. If you don't know how to present a solution, if you don't know how to pitch your idea. So that's in the best interest of admin, but also in the best interest of your patients, then yeah, it's gonna, they're going to say no frequently. So he came in and he was like, we are on your team. We just need your help. And when you present problems without a solution that helps both of us, and you say we need more staff, but if we keep staffing at this ratio, then we're going to go under as a hospital and then lose healthcare to the entire community. You know, we got to work with that, you know? So that's kind of like what we were thinking, <laughs> I guess. Well, no, that's pretty inspiring. I, I like the idea of using these principles to help yourself, to help your patients, because if you don't understand the cost of a drug, how can you prescribe that without guilt, you know? if you're prescribing a drug that costs $10,000 a month, you better know that it's worth that $10,000. Um, so yeah, I really like that idea of everything you do benefits yourself, but also benefits your patients as well as working with hospital administration. Yeah, exactly. And education is power, right? Or knowledge is power. I'm sorry. And there's a reason for that is because when you understand what is going on with these processes, it helps you to figure out a solution. You know, if you understand why, reasonably admin is doing these things like the, the most even kill physicians that I have met are the ones that when I get upset, even when I feel like I have a good understanding of admin, they tell me another side of the story that I hadn't thought of. And they're like, look, this is just how the system works. Let's figure out a way to work within the system. And then we can present, present a solution to admin. Um, and that is helpful for also your, your frustrations that we are inevitably going to deal with, you know? Um, so I think that just understanding those, the, the inner workings of the, of the healthcare system is, um, is helpful. And there's a, a great quote from Batman begins. Um, great, movie. Was, great movie. And he was like, you always, people always fear what they don't understand. Right. And that always spoke to me. It's like, if you understand things, then you won't be as fearful or as frustrated in our, in our case, um, at least to a degree. Now, of course you start digging deep enough, you might find things that you don't want to find, but that's an entirely other story and entirely other podcast we could get into. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a key concept talking about the dynamic between administrators and physicians that sometimes physicians I've noticed don't like fully grasp the concept that some things are a zero sum game. We don't live mm -hmm. in a perfect world and sacrifices have to be made, you know, and it's unfortunate sometimes, but you have to kind of start from that position that, you know, it's not like, it's not, we don't live in a perfect world. You can't just have everything. Some things have to be sacrificed for other things. Right. And then, you know, to, as a counterpoint to my own point, which is what I do often, um, there is an, there's another story and it's the, it's the dirty side of medicine and it's the corporations that are taking over and they are a zero sum game and they are all about the profits. And my dad actually used to work for those. And he says it's an entirely different situation at his hospital versus the, the hospitals that shall not be named on a recorded podcast um, but I think that, I think we all know who they are. 
and the way that they kind of operate within the medical environment. So certainly I've heard horror stories of situations where you can't even reach out to admin and I understand your frustration, their frustrations there. Um, so there is a balance as there is with everything. There's two sides of the coin. I was going to say, speaking of uh, corruption and perverse incentives and things like that, that is a nice segue into the next topic. So you actually started, um, helped co-found this organization time that we've talked about. Can you just kind of like describe what that is? Yeah. So it is a nonprofit organization that's run uh, by medical students, mostly at TCOM who um, have with a few other medical schools as well recently. Um, so our main goal is to encourage human trafficking education into medical curriculum. Uh, that right now is mainly focused on medical school and EMS curriculum. Um, <clears throat> I was an EMT and our vice president is on the Texas, Eric Steffels on the Texas board of EMS educators. So we're kind of focusing on those two realms, but uh, we kind of got started at the end of my first year when we were listening to a human trafficking training that uh, our, the other co-founder, Brooke Beck, uh, she kind of set up with Sims and she, and they had talked about how these patients were presenting in the emergency department. And I just had, you know, shivers down my spine because I had one of those out of body moments where I was looking back on my conversations and my experiences as an ER tech. And I realized that I'd easily missed five of them. Um, or at least somebody who was deserving of a screening. You know, I'm not sure if they were, but a few questions here or there could have put them higher or lower up on that. On that, And we just had no idea. Nobody talked about it. It was not on any differential. And there are things that I feel like we can change in this world that are obtainable. Some things are a little bit more difficult, but I felt like if all we had to do was just add this to a textbook, put it on a differential list, put it in, uh, you know, put it in um, the step one and step two books or whatever, um, the first aid books, then that at least gets you thinking about it. So you're looking out for it. It may not come as often as, you know, um, some of the other vasculitides that come, you know, once every 15 years that you have to know like the back of your hand, <laughs> but it is, uh, it, it's a lot more common actually kind of facetious about that. It's a lot more common than, uh, people think. So that's what something that we felt like we could change. All we had to do is bring attention to the fact that this was an issue that was not being recognized and we were not as medical professionals being taught when you have studies that show anywhere from 50 to 88% of survivors use a medical practitioner at some point and were not recognized in, in any way, shape or form. And then that's, that is a deficiency of knowledge, but that is a, that is a fixable problem. And we felt like we could fix that problem through awareness, uh, through training. So we set up trainings at uh, medical schools. We just did a big statewide training. We had nine medical schools show up. Uh, for the training, which was amazing. Um, so we're getting, we're getting the word out there. We're working on uh, some research projects. We're working on outreach to USMLE to try to see if we can get these, uh, this information on the exam. I know, I know y'all hate me try to get more information on your steps that you're going to have to take, but um, it is actually estimated to be more common than HIV worldwide. 50 million people estimated being trafficked, 45 million people estimated with HIV um, at this time. So tell me you don't know all those HIV drugs or the inner workings of that. And it's just a pain in your butt to learn all that stuff. But all I'm asking you to do is learn a few things about how these people present and then ask a few questions and find them some resources, you know? Yeah. I went to one of your trainings. I think it was last year is before COVID hit. And it yeah. really was inspiring. They had a doctor. He's a family doc who works, mm -hmm. I believe hand in hand with you guys with a different yeah. organization. But anyway, it was super inspiring. And, and I remember thinking, wow, 
these are definitely things I need to learn about. It kind of shocks me that some of the licensing exams don't have this on there already because we do see questions about child abuse and senior abuse and things of that nature. And it just seems a natural sequelae to also talk about human trafficking, especially when it's so prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just the fact that the world in general is just starting to catch up that this is such a big issue. You know, it wasn't, um, there was some research done, but the, the, honestly, the biggest research um, that has been done has been between, you know, 2013 to 2018 or so are the most quoted uh, pieces of research these days, which shows you how recent the information is. And it's such a difficult thing to do research on because of how vastly we have to estimate this thing because, you know, people don't come forward uh, because of the things, you know, we're not going to go into a training here, but um, it's just really difficult to find out exactly how prevalent this is, which makes it even more difficult to go up to the powers that be and be like, this is an issue. And they're like, well, you know, there was only 1100 people that called the human trafficking hotline last year, you know? Um, but they extrapolate that out. And now the university of Texas at Austin is saying it's like 313,000 that are being trafficked in the state of Texas alone based off their estimations. So it's, their estimations, they are what they are, um, no doubt about that. But it's, uh, I think it, it is now becoming a universally accepted thing that is a lot more common than people think it is, especially in the healthcare world. Yeah, and my favorite, or not my favorite part about this problem, but one good thing about this issue is there's a really low bar to start doing something. You know, like you said, it's just training. It's nothing crazy. A few questions on the licensing exam and training, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Exactly. You know, compared to like a lot of other problems that we have in medicine. No, exactly. And that's why I felt so empowered by it because I was like, I literally sat there. I was like, I can do this. I was like, we can do this. We can get together and I could, I could yell loud enough. I'm a loud enough guy. Uh, I could bang on doors. You can ask some of the admin at TCOM. I would show up be like, Hey, it's me. You know, like I, I didn't stop. You know, when you have a passion about something, you just you just don't stop until it's done. And I, I will not stop until it is in all medical schools across the country. And I think it'll be sooner than later. It'll take some time. Um, but hopefully with uh, the encouragement from multiple different, you know, organizations from around the country, that'll, that'll start happening. So it seems like a lot of this, you can kind of bootstrap, right? Like you're pounding on administrators doors, you're calling people, you're talking to people, but obviously you need some funding. You mentioned that you guys are just about to launch your first website. How have you gained funding for this nonprofit? We don't. <laughs> we have done everything with pretty much zero dollars and zero cents. Uh, we have relied on our amazing uh, partners, Unbound. Uh, they have supported us. And uh, the, the kind of beauty of our nonprofit is, at least in the beginning, before we are starting to scale now, it didn't require much in the way of finances, especially when you have partners like Unbound that are more well-established. They, they had not previously been able to penetrate the medical school market. So it was a natural partnership where they were like, because they do trainings, you know, we, we don't do the trainings. We're not certified to do that, but we hook it up with the medical school and then Unbound sends the trainer, the certified trainer to do that, which is actually one of only two certified trainings in the state of Texas right now is via Unbound. Um, so they, that was a natural partnership. They had a little bit more funding uh, than we did. And honestly, like it was just 
there were so many things that popped up that, especially in medical school, when I'm still trying to make myself a good applicant for residency based off my grades, and when your entire organization is based off of medical students who are also in other things and trying to be the best medical students they can be, um, it gets a little difficult to, to focus on those things. And frankly, we were doing really well uh, without too much funding. Um, recently, we started to focus a little bit more on that, and that's part of the whole um, you know, trying to specialize in certain things. In the beginning, we were doing everything, literally everything that you do to try to get it up and running. And funding was just not at the, at the top of our, our list of things to do. We were having trainings. We were meeting with admin, you know, trying to, we were, we actually made a module. Um, I don't know if hopefully y'all will see it, but we made a module with the school, uh, with two videos and a human trafficking survivor as well. Um, so we were focused on the actionable items that we needed to do. Um, and we just kept finding people who wanted to help us out, you know. Um, now we're in a position where we're going to start focusing, getting a fundraiser uh, coordinator on board, somebody who is designated to focus on that because when you try to straddle yourself in too many different areas of trying to grow your organization, you inevitably do decent at all of them and not really good at any of them, you know, or just some of them just fall by the wayside. So I had a question um, just about the mechanics. How do you go about starting and registering for a nonprofit? Cause I looked online, you guys are fully registered and, you know, coming from the biology major, I'm not even sure what all that means. Can you just talk about that process? Yeah. So this is a, a learning process starting from the absolute beginning. You know, uh, we, we applied through the state of Texas to become a nonprofit corporation. Um, that does not mean that you are tax exempt. That is a separate, uh, that is a separate application that you have to do, um, a 1023-EZ application for a 501c3, and that allows you to do tax exempt. So basically, going back to our previous thing, we had talked about doing fundraising, but it was a little bit difficult to focus on fundraising when we weren't even a nonprofit. Or a, we were a nonprofit, but we weren't a 501c3, so it couldn't be tax exempt. Um, we couldn't get a GoFundMe up because you had to be a 501c3. We couldn't get a PayPal or anything because we weren't, officially like that. So we had to delay it a little bit. That application took, you know, takes like four to six months. Um, and then you got step one and step two. So <laughs> all that stuff kind of, uh, you know, just kept coming up things in med school you find just keep coming up. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, you gotta have, um, you gotta have bylaws. You gotta start off with that. Um, you gotta have a bank account so that you can associate, you know, especially when you're fundraising and you're trying to get people to donate, you gotta start that up where you gotta print off your bylaws and show them that you're a real organization. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Obviously, this is just kind of our experience, but, um, you know, you gotta make sure that you are documenting everything, especially votes. And there's just a lot of things that you have to learn that I didn't know. Luckily, uh, our vice president, he was on a nonprofit board. So he had been through a lot of this over the past couple of years. So I heavily relied on him to kind of direct us where we needed to go, because obviously we want everything to stay above ground. You know, we want to make sure we're doing everything right, crossing our I's, dotting our T's, because um, we don't want to have anything, you know, come back that we weren't documenting things properly as, as the reason for us to take down. That's just not acceptable, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of the basics. You know, you start up with your core people that are super passionate about it. And then, um, you do your paperwork and then on a yearly basis, you just have to file paperwork when you don't make any money, you don't have any funding. It's really easy paperwork. <laughs> so it hasn't been uh, too incredibly difficult on that side. Honestly, it's pretty inspiring to see a group of passionate people, 
get together and just bootstrap something and you're leveraging each other's strengths, but making change real legit change. How big is your team? You mentioned you have a vice president. It sounds like there's quite a few of you. You're partnering with other organizations. How big are you guys? Yeah. So we actually just restructured the entire organization. I did, uh, I, I've been a part of a couple leadership organizations that I felt like did things a little bit more organized. You know, that was our big goal for 2021 was really to get organized because my mind is just scattered all over the place. Um, so we actually have 12 people. We have four board members and we have eight, uh, committee members. We have, um, human trafficking training committee, which is, um, you know, they've been really heavily involved the past two years. We have our time expansion committee where we're focused on bringing more people in to time or at least to time's message. You don't have to become a member of time. We would love to have you on board, but we've had one, two, three medical schools and three different States reach out because of our trainings recently saying, I would love to start this at my school or try to get this integrated, which is exactly the message that we're trying to do. Uh, we have our EMS committee, uh, which Eric leads trying to focus on how we can get this integrated into EMS. Um, we have our social media coordinator that just came on board, hopefully in the future, a fundraising coordinator. If anyone is listening to this and wants to get involved with the organization, would love to have you on board. Um, and then we have, you know, website developers. So really what I'm trying to do is learn from people who have already done this in the past with their startups and stuff. Don't try to do everything because nothing happens. You know, we have, we have a research committee too. And the biggest thing that you could do, especially in the leaders of your organization is really to empower people to take their jobs to the next level, you know? And I, and we really felt like doing the committee based approach where they can be the leaders of their committee. And what I'm telling my team is I want y'all to take this as the, the game stop at the ANC stock to the moon, you know, <laughs> um, I want y'all to really take this and run with it because this is your committee. I'm here to support you. I'm here to remind you of our message and focus us on the route. But at the end of the day, I want y'all to run with this and, and take this to the next level. Um, so I'm, I'm happy. I'm incredibly proud of our team and the things that we've done. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it amazes me. I get shivers down my spine. I take a moment to just, take in what we've done because every time that we have a conversation like this, we're changing the world. That is a firm belief of mine. People are waiting for this big monumental shift to change the world. In my mind, if I can just inspire you two, I'm done because I don't know who you are or what you're going to be. You can go on to be the next Bill Gates. You can go on to be the next president of the United States. You know, I don't know because when you listen to people, the most inspiring people, a lot of them started from one person. You know, one teacher in fourth grade that just showed them they can do it, even though they had a horrible um, ability to focus, you know, just somebody along the way who inspired them. And that is what I hope we can be for other people. Yeah, that's that's kind of ties in with one of the messages of the podcast that we've brought up before this idea of like using these side projects to fight against burnout. And like you touched on, it doesn't really matter what specifically you're doing just get out there and do something and make the world better even if it's only incremental change like it's got to start somewhere and you know for better or worse we have a ton of problems that we need to solve in our society so yeah that is that is uh very true that's another podcast as well (laughs) so jake what advice do you have for medical students who want to make an impact who want to make change so I would start by saying you don't have to be a business owner. You don't have to start a nonprofit. You don't have to be a leader within an organization. That is certainly helpful. Uh, but so first, 
rewind back, you know, what is your life goal? I always come back to this and I always come back to deathbed Jake, right? And I know this is morbid, but this is honestly what motivates me more than anything. It's like, what am I going to think about my life when I'm on my deathbed? Am I going to be proud of what I've done? Am I going to have achieved all the things? And my personal life goal is to have a positive influence on as many people as possible, you know, spread that umbrella as wide as possible. So they're, they're pretty aspirational in that sense. But if you're, if your life goal is just to make a difference every day, then that's okay too. You know, it's just, you have to figure out who you are, what you want first before you can go about the actionable plans. Now, um, if you want to make an impact, right? I, I go back to what I said, let's start with the base level. You can do that by having a simple conversation with, with anyone. Right. And I, I really truly mean that even if it's somebody, one of your friends who's going on the political deep end on either side of the spectrum, and you bring them back to center a little bit, that matters. You know, don't shy away from those conversations. That's number one is don't be afraid to have conversations with people. Um, number two is, you know, find out what your passion is. And if you're not passionate about something right now, that is okay. Allow yourself to believe that that passion will come because my perspective changed a lot when I was in uh, an ER tech and I was also EMS liaison. So I was driving out to uh, ambulances and uh, hospitals trying to get more of their, you know, uh, transfers to come to our hospital. So I was, I was on the road a lot. I was listening to a lot of Ted radio hour and what I kind of found, yeah, like a lot of that, um, is that, you know, these people were just simple people found a solution or, or, or recognized a problem and found a solution to it. And they, they didn't really go seeking a problem. You can, and that would, that's great, but you don't have to seek it. If you're just focused on surviving medical school right now, that's completely okay. But the quicker you allow your mind to say, there's something out there that I know I'm going to solve. If, you, if you're a big thinker and you really want to make a huge impact on, on a community or on a state or on a regional level, um, it'll probably come. Like you said, Chandler, there is enough problems in the world uh, that, that need to be solved. So it'll probably come. And, that, and that's what I would say is like, um, I kind of allowed myself to believe that that's going to happen. And then the human trafficking thing, I didn't go seeking that, right? I had already kind of started the medical business association. I was in, uh, we had done some ultrasound stuff. I got passionate about that. Things just come up. And if you believe that you can make a difference, then you will find your passion project, right? You ever heard that phrase, the passion project? So you, it's okay. You'll find it. If you don't find it right now, that's okay. Just the most important thing is allow your mind, allow yourself to believe that you will find that. And then when that moment comes, when that door opens, you go banging through that door, you know, you just go right through it and then see what's on the other side. And that's, that's kind of what my approach was. And then the, I kind of think about this a lot. Um, once you've established that passion project, then it requires the four P's. I just added a P in my mind. It's been three P's for the past four years, but I just added a P. Um, passion. This is exclusive is content right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. TM, TM. <laughs> um, passion is number one. Um, perseverance, preparation, and patience. Right? So you got to have the passion for it. You know, you can you can be the president of a club and do what you need to do to put it on the CV. Um, but if you want to find your passion project, something new, exciting that you're, you're developing from the ground up, you got to really think about it constantly. You know, you got to be, it, it's got to make you go from monotonous to probably talking a little bit too loud like me. Um, and then you got to have your uh, perseverance. Just, you got to keep going. You know, I, I can tell you that if there are any TCOM faculty that are listening to this, they, they knew who I was because if they didn't, 
you know, they didn't respond to my email after a certain time. I'd go up and say hi to them. <laughs> and, you know, that's just what it was. And um, so that was, you got to persevere through what is inevitably going to be a long process, right? And this is where the patience comes in. Um, it could take, it took two years for us to get this integrated into the TCOM curriculum. Um, and that's just the way that things go in the meta ed world. It takes a lot to integrate new stuff or to change new things, right? Um, so having the patience is really important. And then kind of in between all of that is your preparation. You got to prepare for each meeting. You know, my, my mom is a retired accountant and her job is to train what, how are things going to go wrong? She's, she's trained to look at all the, all the ways that think, things can go wrong in a scenario or an organization. And that was huge for me because I'd sit down with my team. I'm like, all right, before we go into this meeting, why are they going to say no? What are the, all the reasons that they are not going to listen to us? How are all the ways that this can go wrong, right? And I have a pretty creative mind and I'm pretty paranoid as it is. So it's pretty easy for me to get to the absolute worst scenario where somehow I'm kicked out of medical school. I don't know how I get there, but it happens. So I'm prepared for literally anything that happens in any of these meetings and they go pretty well. Um, but that, that's all about preparation. You know, you, you got to know what your goal is with each meeting, right? You got to know what your question is. You got to know what you're trying to get. And you can't just go in there willy-nilly. You know, a lot of times my goals were just, I just want your advice. Here's what we've done. Here's what we're trying to do. Can you please give me your advice? And people love to help and to give advice. I, I never really had much of a pitch until at a certain point. Um, and I'm not saying I was good at that. I, there's some things that you have to develop. But I'd say um, if you want to focus on those four things, the passion, patience, perseverance, and preparation, I think that will really help you if you're trying to develop a project and get it. And, and more importantly, finish the project because you can develop all the projects you want. You know, I heard that in my residency interview, everyone has a great idea when they come into residency and then none of them, none of them see it through. Um, but we were able to see the medical business association come through the ultrasound got integrated human trafficking did, you know, seeing through projects is a, an amazing uh, thing to be able to achieve. Johnny and I are both in Indo right now. So talking about all these P's, we're going through the MEN syndromes, you know, and I don't know if you remember the little graph from, uh, you know, first aid with all the different P's in there. Yeah. Yeah. I got some bad flashbacks when you said the P's. (laughs) Flashbacks. This should be fresh in your mind right now. Yeah. You would think. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, One thing I like about you talking about what, project to pick is you talked about okay you can do something locally at your school you can do something statewide or nationally um but honestly you'll just have a great impact as a physician finding mm-hmm. people that need your help right, right. if you attended time trafficking tra- training and then you help that one person escape from trafficking that's a huge difference right and oh, yeah. being passionate about helping the individual is still a way to be passionate and to have your passion project same as building the organization that does the trainings. I just like the versatility of you don't have to make the national organization. And if you do, that's awesome, but you can also impact the one person and that's awesome as well. Yeah. And and I have a a close friend of mine who was in admin before medical school and he never wants to go back. And he's like, I'm perfectly happy, you know, showing up to the ED doing my work and, and going home. But he is one of the best that I've seen do it. He is, he's one of the most passionate care uh, caring, hardworking people that I know, and I know he's going to make a difference in people's lives. And, and he, he already has, you know, just being around him has made me a better person. Um, and that's something that you may not think just by being a good person, you encourage others to do that. You know, you are that, what is it the saying? You are the average of your friend group or something like that. 
Uh, that is that is so so true. And you know, the the friends that I have made in medical school have absolutely made me the person who I am today. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely don't think that you are failing your duties or your desires to make a difference in the world if you're not having being part of a national organization or starting your own nonprofit. There are plenty of people who do that. You know, you can be a student leader in, in TMA or TOMA. You know, you can bring to light certain issues without ever having a, a nonprofit. So I would certainly say that that's a thing, or you can come up with an invention or, you know, there's the, the bedside business podcast. I mean, this is, this is awesome. You know, I, I hope this, and I think this will, this will uh, do a really great job and blow up and uh, do a good job of like reaching out to people. So um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a, a big, a big message here is there are a lot of different ways to do it and don't underestimate the effect that you can have on one person. We also wanted to ask about your future. What do you see your future looking like as a physician, as a resident? Do you see yourself continuing on with time? Do you think you'll transition out of this role and let other people take the reins? What's kind of your future look like? So, yeah, that's a question I got a lot in my interviews. Um, so I, I just I just uh, uh, got two more years as president of time. So I'll be in there till at least I'm a second year uh, resident. And I'm really focused on building up time so that it can start operating on its own. And that's kind of not something where we were previously, but really where I'm trying, where we're trying to get uh, to this point is to kind of operate with support rather than, you know, kind of pushing and that stuff. Um, so I see myself certainly being involved. I, uh, recently actually just got elected to be the chair elect of the ultrasound committee for EMRA. Um, so we'll be involved with that as well as I have been for the past couple of years. So, um, I, I told, you know, I'll tell you what I told the people that interviewed me was, which is I'm coming in as somebody who is really passionate about finding problems and following through on my solutions. I don't know what I'm going to find. I mean, obviously the human trafficking thing is a big pool. That's not going to just all of a sudden not become a problem. I'm probably don't need to find a new issue to address in, in residency because nobody is adequately prepared for this in the residency world as they should be. And there is so little research. So if I could focus on one thing, especially as a resident, you have to have an, uh, an you know, ACGME requirements that you have an academic project over your three years. That's a pretty easy one for me. And I talked to a lot of them about like, what are the needs right now? Do we need screening modalities? Do we need treatment modalities? Do we need disposition? There's a lot of different things that you could research. So I think that's going to be a big focus of mine and is, is really finding good quality research that I think can help support other physicians in their approach to this. And I think that's, that is the initial impact that I want to make on the uh, field of emergency medicine and medicine in general, you know, and I'm would be excited at whatever residency program, if they're watching this to do it at your program. <laughs> well, if I had if I had a residency program, I'd give you a spot on it. So, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, it's um, that. And then I, you know, people in the interviews ask me, what is your five, 10, 15 year plan? And, and during the pandemic, I really felt passionate about the necessity of medical doctors and <clears throat> physicians, you know, just people in the scientific community representing the, the medical community on a political platform, because I can guarantee you guys that if we didn't have people at ASAP and the American hospital association vying for us at the administration's talks, they, we would not have gotten the PPE that we needed. And I, I read the ASAP threads, the American college of emergency physicians, you know, I read those threads about the calls that they were on with the administration and how difficult it was for them to get the things that they needed. 
But if they weren't there, it would have been way worse. I know it seems horrible right now, the way that we have uh, administratively and um, how the how the leaders of the country at the time handled this pandemic. But I, I promise you, without political outreach from the local world, this would have been way worse. So for me, I'm realizing the impact of being involved in the political realm. And I think maybe in the future, uh, that might be something that I might be interested in, being in like some sort of national leadership or some political leadership. I actually just wrote a paper about this for the Tarrant County Medical Society talking about exactly what you're saying. It's like doctors are like these, they're the bedrock of society, like in terms of scientific thinking and rational thinking and stuff like that. And there's this weird phenomenon that happens when you get older and you kind of look around and realize if things are going to happen, if things are going to go a certain way, it's up to me. Like now we're, we're becoming the adults. We're the people who have to carry this on. And uh, right. we have a we have a responsibility to do a good job with it. So yeah. I love that. Well, did you have anything else to uh, add before we wrap it up? Um, no, just you know, thank you guys so much. You know, I really, really love what y'all are doing and bringing light to these issues. I think it's amazing. You know, I just I, I can't say enough how passionate I am that you and anyone else listening to this can do what I did. You know, all it takes is somebody is just something that impassionates you. And then just the follow through, I don't feel like I did anything or our team has done anything um, exceptional that other people can't do. I think that um, we can definitely work as a community, as a people together to make it a better place. But it all starts with each individual. If each individual actually believed that they can make the world a better place, then collectively we can actually make the significant difference to make the big monumental changes that we want to. But it's kind of similar to the voting thing. If each person thinks that their vote doesn't matter, then they're right. So what I want to leave people with is kind of a, another, another thing that I thought of. Um, if you don't believe that you can change the world, you will be right. If you do believe that you can change the world, you just might be right. I think that's a great place to end. Jake, thank you so much. Well,